So we are on the pod. It yes. is not a, a usual time. No, it is Wednesday. It is dark outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are here to have a conversation about something really important that um, we both became aware of today. Mm-hmm. Although it is something that like other people have known about for a while. Um, and I think part of what's interesting about what we're talking about today is that like I was not aware of this when the story first broke in August because like I wasn't really paying attention to forensics things at that time. But I find it very interesting. So uh, what we're talking about today, um, first of all, trigger warning, we're going to be talking about sexual harassment. Um, This is not a fun episode of the pod, guys. Uh, This is what we would call a very important episode of the pod. Um, it, it, uh, It demands conversation, but it is not a pleasant topic of conversation. Um, so this morning I was, uh, at the car dealership getting something fixed on John's car and I was perusing the internet and I noticed that in one of the high school speech coach forums, somebody had posted an article to the Atlantic, an article that had published yesterday, uh, by Caroline Kitchener and it described, um, a series of sexual harassment claims against the coach from George Mason University, a man named Peter Pober, um, who is a very well-known coach within collegiate forensics and also runs a camp for high school students at George Mason University. A very, very well-known guy. The article explains how well-known he is and brings in a lot of context for who this man is and how he interacts with students. And we'll get into all of that. I think it's worth mentioning, though, that the allegations were also detailed in an article in the Washington Post way back in August. Did you hear about this at all in August? I did not. I this article also mentions uh, some accusations for a coach from Bradley. uh, And I, due to having friends that are on the collegiate circuit or have been on the collegiate circuit, I saw postings about that. But I, until you sent me this article today, I had no idea about this story. Yeah. Um, so I, I need to get a couple things out of the way first, because uh, I think when you have these types of conversations, uh, the onus is on us as the people having the conversation and putting it out in the world uh, to be really responsible about the conversation we have. So a couple of disclaimers. Um, Pober has not been convicted of any crimes. Um, Everybody that we're going to be talking about in the course of the story, um, these are just the people we know from the story. Uh, They were college-age students, which means they were over the age of 18. Um, While the story quotes several students describing their own firsthand experiences with Pober, it also quotes other students who claim that they know more people were harassed, but those stories uh, were not corroborated at all in the article that was published in the Atlantic. Um, And I want to be very specific, too, about the actions that were taken. Um, So the allegations against uh, Peter Pober came in February of 2018 from a student who was still his student who he approached and uh, tried to instigate a sexual relationship with. The very next day, that student uh, composed the letter to Uh, the governing body, whatever, I don't know, college sports. Um, But it's a a Title IX 
um, violation. And so uh, Pober was put on administrative leave in February. He then retired in May of that year, but was not involved with the team from February to May of that year. And um, and so, yeah, those, those are the facts. Um, I will also link to both the Atlantic article and the Washington Post article for people who are listening to this and would like to pause and go get all of the information first before they listen to us talk about it. Highly recommend that. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think you should go get um, all the information. And so, so that's the situation in a nutshell. I've seen this article for the first time this morning. I immediately messaged you and sent you the article and said, I think we need to talk about this um, because it is something that's happening in our world, in um, not just our, our world as in, you know, in the United States, there's a reckoning happening right now um, with the Me Too movement. And this is our, as the story, the article says, this is our Me Too movement in the world of speech and debate, or this is our, our Me Too moment in the world of speech and debate. And so let's, let's talk about it, what it means to be a coach of young people and um, to find out that somebody who is so revered in our community has been accused of some really responsible and, and gross conduct. So I guess I'll start just by like, what, what are your general impressions? What are you feeling? Uh, well, when I initially read this article, I did not make it through without crying. Uh, as someone who so, and if I, I might not make it through this recording without crying, like, let me put it out there. This sort of thing makes me very emotional. Uh, as a woman, I am in my own way, a statistic, someone who has dealt with sexual harassment and sexual assault in my history, I am very passionate, but also very easily put back into that place of helplessness when I read other people's stories. And one of the things that was also really hard for me about this is that I so intensely take my job as a coach and take my power and influence over my students so seriously that when I see someone abusing it for their own personal gain, it makes me physically upset. <laughs> and so reading this was really hard for me. But at the same time, I sent this article to a former student, now friend of mine, and we spent an hour trading back and forth stories that we knew and rumors that we had heard of people in our state who people believe had had misconduct with students, misconduct with other judges. And it's the sort of thing where we, we push it under the rug or we have excuses for it because of the level of intimacy that we build, the emotional intimacy that a coach and a competitor have that we try to, ex we try to excuse it. Like the idea that someone might've read too much into an interaction they overheard between a student and a coach. But yet if people had seen these things happening with this coach and had said something and not brushed it aside as just a really close coach student relationship, then this wouldn't have happened for as long as it did. Hmm. And it just, it you know, makes me really sad. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's the the dominant emotion is that it's just sad that it that it happened in the first place and that it happened for so long and that so many of these young adults were made to feel insecure or unsafe um, in in an environment that we all strive to make the safest place. Um, so let's let's tackle that a little bit because you you touched on it already and the article talks about this um, very explicitly. In fact, uh, a quote from the article, they're talking about, you know, part of the activity is making oneself vulnerable so that you can create a piece of writing in a speech or, or share a piece of literature in such a way that it can connect to an audience. Uh, but the article says specifically, but this emphasis on vulnerability also gives a tremendous amount of power to the people in charge. It makes it easier for someone if they're a predator to prey, says Welty, who filed the Title IX complaint that led to Pover leaving George Mason. And I think that's part of, aside from the the harassment itself, I think that notion is what struck me the most in this article, because um, I don't think I've ever heard it put that succinctly before, that we, yeah. these young people, and we do it in high school forensics, and he is doing it in college forensics, um, we ask these young people oftentimes to open up to us and to feel safe with us, to be able to share part of their story not only with us as coaches, but then to also like help them shape their story into something that can be shared with a larger audience. Some of them, you know, some of our high school students make it all the way to the national stage and their story is shared with thousands of people in the room who knows how many people once it's on the internet uh, and being shared across the country. And many of them, most of the successful ones, I'm thinking, you know, particularly in oratory, they share some pretty pretty personal details about their life and their family and the struggles that they've had or or that their parents or family has had. And um, and we encourage that. And, and it's a part of what we do. And it was worth the conversation that we're having right now and hopefully conversations that this episode will create to talk to one another as coaches and to make sure that we establish boundaries with our students um, to make sure that everybody stays safe and and to recognize within each other and within ourselves those times when maybe the best thing for the student is not to share that much. And when that happens, to be okay with it. Um, and this is really, this is aside from the harassment part. Um, this is just something that I'd never thought about in this way before that in trying to help someone be good at forensics, we could cross a line and actually hurt them emotionally. And so I, I wanted to address that as well. Um, but also that this was part of his tactic. This was part of his yeah. thing. This is how he found people to make connections with and ultimately approach for sex. And, and that was to find out their vulnerabilities. And so, I mean, the article talks about the, him doing this in a few different ways. You know, they did something called campfires, which anybody who is from Sheboygan North will remember in show choir, we used to do something called brats. And I don't know why it was called that, but it was this exact thing. And I need to, like, reflect on that a little bit that we used to do this in high school. But you, you would, they, the article describes these students getting together with a campfire or without one, just in a circle and like basically trying to one-up each other with their sad life stories. 
and, and just sharing really personal things about themselves in, in this group where they were made to feel safe and like a family. But then the coach, Peter Pober, would remember those things and bring them up later, not only for the benefit yeah. of writing a speech, but also to be able to have an intimate moment, you know, to, to be one-on-one -on -one with someone and be able to say, well, tell me about, tell me a little bit more about your mom who is struggling with X, Y, Z and building that, yeah, and, that way. And we have conversations with our students when we're deciding on Farago themes and poetry programs about what they care about. And we talk about the messages that they want to bring across to the world or what they might want to process. We have students who are talking about coming out to their parents. We have students that are talking about processing past traumas with abusive families. And we want to find places to do that in a great way. And there's this awful part of us as coaches that want our students to present these messages, yes, to benefit themselves. But there's also that part of us that knows what does well in forensics. And it is that intense, almost uncomfortable vulnerability. And we reward it. So we then are trying to we are asking so much of our students, high school or college, to go up there and be vulnerable at all. Like getting up there in front of those judges, no matter what the category is, they're being vulnerable. But when you are having a student get up there and talk about their family and their illegal immigration status, because you know, because part of you knows, yes, it, they get to process it, they get to own it, they get to stand in their truth. But there's always that part of us that knows that we're also doing it because we know it's going to do well. Mm -hmm. And that sucks. And that's something that I have been sitting in all days. The thoughts of the pieces that I have done where I've asked so much of a student and I've watched them walk away feeling so drained. I can think of a piece that I have a kid doing this year where I, I when I see them tomorrow for practice for qualifiers this weekend, I'm going to hug them with their consent and apologize <laughs> if I, if, cause I know how emotionally draining his performance is every week because how intensely tidy is to his piece. But part of that is why he does well. And I would hope that he would tell me if he felt uncomfortable about the level that we were pushing him to, but also they want to impress us. These kids are talking about how desperately they wanted the approval of this coach, not just because he was their coach and because he was establishing himself as a father figure, but because of what a big deal he was to the entire forensics community and what that approval meant. And one of the aspects that made me really uncomfortable was that he's always talking about family and not, it's not a team, it's a family. And I've talked on this podcast so many times about how I feel the same way. We, we joke about it, but also I do, I call them my kids. They call me their children. My, one of my students greeted me today by saying, Hey mom. And that's normal for me. But the idea of there being people who take this position of power and they exploit it and they take it to their advantage and they, f they find these kids who are coming to our activity to fit in. They're trying to find a place where they can belong and they see this man who is willing to take them in and to wrap his arms around them and find that place where they're fit in and then he takes advantage of it is just soul destroying for me. And I just, I, I don't even think I've fully processed it yet. Uh, 
Why not? You had like 12 hours. (sighs) I mean, come on. (laughs) It's just this this idea that there, and there are things that they talk about in this article that they label as signs of things that he was doing that people should have like been concerned about, like having practices one-on-one in hotel rooms and in dark windowless rooms of their school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I practice with kids in a hotel room at an overnight at a nationals tournament. If I need to get into a classroom and they don't give me an access to a classroom at South, I'm in a weird stairwell. I'm in a weird closet. We've all of us have put our, been in these practices in these situations with our students where they're putting our trust in them or they're putting their trust in us that we are a safe space, not just emotionally, but also physically. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us have things that we're doing to ensure that we're making sure our hotel room doors aren't, we're not locking ourselves in with our students that like that we're not actually, some people don't practice alone. Some schools don't allow mm-hmm. stu- like coaches to be alone with their students. But there are things in this article that to us are completely normal that to someone from the outside, they would think we're insane. They talk about his, the dress code for the team Mm -hmm. and how he would make students get their outfits approved. I do that. Yeah. Well, and (laughs) that's nearly to the level of like, of, of rude and picky and deprecating that he does. But I, I make my students show me their competition outfits. Mm -hmm. And I will say that's a normal thing. That is one area where the article veered in a direction that I thought, I don't know that that has much to do with the unhealthy behavior. You know, I mean, it's, it's one thing to like groom someone for sexual harassment or for, for sexual abuse is what it would have been if, if it had moved further. But we are also responsible for making sure that students present themselves well. It's part of the medium of the activity. It's like a visual medium. So like, um, you know, to the degree that that he controlled them and like made the boys wear his ties, like that was weird. That okay, but commenting on if you think a dress is too short or an outfit is inappropriate for competition, I think we're still in safe territory there. I think there is yeah. there is a certain thing. I mean, we are we are literally grooming our students for competition, um, yeah. which is different than grooming them for sexual harassment. Um, you know, it's, it's funny to hear you say some of the stuff that you were just saying. And I don't know what the difference is between you and me, if it's that you're a woman and I'm a man, or if it's that I grew up and worked in the Catholic church. But I feel like a lot of the stuff that you were describing, I have been very wary of. Like I, I have always been afraid to be alone in a room with a kid, and that I mean I'm not yeah. exaggerating. Like fear is the feeling that if it, no, we've talked about yeah, it. Yeah, like I, I just don't feel comfortable with it, um, because at any moment in time, and this is not an oh poor white man thing, it's not. But at any moment in time, like if there's a time when I'm alone with a kid, that kid could say whatever they want happened in that room and it would be me versus them and in that situation as a man as a gay man i just feel like who's going to believe me over 
especially a forensics kid, kids who are so high achieving and, and so well-spoken and so smart, like if, if, if that accusation were ever to come, I just don't know what I would do. And so I've always made sure that when practicing at the school, people know I'm there. The door is always open. The, you know, when I needed to have a conversation with a kid directly, especially if it was about something sensitive, I always made sure one of my co-coaches was there with me. I never approached a student alone. I never practiced in a hotel room alone with a kid, even with the door propped open. Like it just, it was not something that ever felt comfortable for me because I was always afraid of what could happen. Um, and again, this is not an oh, poor man situation. <laughs> like the reason I'm so afraid of that accusation coming is that I know the, the, the perception would be that I was in the wrong. And to a degree I would have been because I would have been letting myself be alone with a student in a room. And it doesn't matter the gender or sexuality of that kid. It doesn't matter what my sexuality is. Any accusation from any student would have had some credibility coming from from them to me if I let myself be in that situation. And so I've always been very concerned about not, not being in any of the situations that were described in this article, you know? And, and it's... It's just interesting to hear that difference, even just between you and me. Yeah. You know? And like you've you felt this... safe in those situations, whereas I never did. Yeah, I. I really in this context, it's it's going to sound ridiculous, but I do pride myself on building a level with tr of trust with my students for them to come to me to talk about things that are non-forensics related to talk about things in a place that is safe. And it leads me to having a really intense emotional intimacy with a lot of my students. I know a lot about them. I know a lot about their lives in some cases more than their families do. And I have supported students emotionally and financially through really big parts of their life in the past. And I will probably continue to do so in the future. And the idea that like some of the things that have built some of these incredible relationships for me, these moments where I've gotten to be with a student one-on-one -on -one and they've gotten to open up to me, we've been, they've sort of had to go through a breakdown and I've gotten to be there to support them and walk them through it and come out on the other side with them. And that people like this are putting these ideas in our heads that we can't have those, that we can't have those moments that, that a student has to worry about walking into a room with just their coach and be worried about what might happen there is terrifying to me <laughs> because I don't just coach. I, I don't coach at all because I want accolades. Very few of us do. The reason that I coach is because of how fulfilling it is for me to play a small role in the lives of some of the most incredible people that our world has to offer. The kids that come out of speech and debate are amazing. They are well-spoken. They are standing in their truth. They are living in their light. They are going out and doing amazing things in our world. This article lists a bunch of famous alum from our activity, and we see how much change that they've done. And the relationships I get to build with these potential world changers, some of that comes from getting to have those moments where you are one-on-one -on -one and they 
feel comfortable enough to be emotionally vulnerable with me. And that is so rewarding to me on levels that I can't even begin to talk about. And yet there are people who take that vulnerability and just consume it for themselves and then turn it back on others, even aside from the sexual harassment allegations, but just the emotional abuse that these students on his team have endured for years the idea that he was a Kate, like sometimes blackmailing mm-hmm. them with the things that they were talking about in these campfire events. I, I can't even imagine repeating aloud some of the things that my students have shared with me, let alone saying it in front of a group to put them in their place because I feel like they've done some misdeed against me. We on this podcast try to acknowledge what a gift it is that we get to be forensics coaches. We get to be forensics judges. We get to be forensics advocates and how lucky we get to be doing that for our activity, for our students, for our associations. And then there are people like this mm-hmm. and I know that they're everywhere. And as a woman, I, I have interacted with them. I have lived through them, but as my grandmother would say, this one really chaps me. <laughs> it, it, yeah. well, you know, I, I, I don't even, I'm, I'm sure that I don't, I'd probably, I'm sorry if I'm not making any sense in this. I, I had my, my niece was with me for spring break this week. So she was hanging out with me in my desk and was there when I was reading this article and was a little freaked out because I began to cry and I had to explain why I was crying and why it was upsetting me. And the fact that I had to have that conversation with my seven-year-old niece and explain to her what Me Too was, yes, it's important. But at the same time, the fact that it's so prevalent that I knew it would be important for me to tell her so that she would know if a lot of the conversation was me saying, if you see something like this where you see someone not being nice or you see that someone doesn't feel good or they feel uncomfortable, you can go find another adult and tell on them. It doesn't matter who that adult is. It could be anyone. It could be the principal. It could be your teacher. It could be a police officer. It could be anyone that you think would be scary. You need to tell and someone. And if the first adult doesn't believe you, go tell another adult. Go tell another one. And there, this article has so many instances of people saying this was just part of what it was. It was this hush-hush. It was these rumors. Everyone was talking about it. And I'm thinking about instances. Like, there are stories that I have of people in our association where we have, they've been through the gossip mill and people have insinuated things about them, but it's never been that big of a deal and it's never been that serious. And now I'm reflecting on myself. Wait, are they actually more serious than I realize? Like, is that interaction that I saw, did that have more meaning than I thought it did? And I am fully intending on having a conversation with my team about this article, asking them, I need to know if you've ever been in this situation with someone else, even if it, even if there was one where I made you feel uncomfortable, where Kroll made you feel uncomfortable, let us talk about it, let us address it. Because we are in this position of incredible power with these young students. And I sort of take advantage of the fact that I came in to being a forensics coach at 19. 
I started coaching immediately after I graduated. The people I was coaching were my former teammates. And so I never had that level of authority that other people did. I think you did have that level of authority. And maybe whoever you were coaching with at the time did not do the right job of having, like, you were also a teenager. They should have had that conversation with you. This should be part of the conversation. And I don't know that it is. Yeah, there. Yeah, we, as part of our positions, we have to go through trainings of what to do if a student comes to us to talk to us about those sort of things and how we report it to our school districts. We don't have any conversations about what to do to ensure, well, at least I don't. And, you know, maybe maybe one of the things is that you and I are from a non-traditional coaching aspect of we don't teach in schools. Mm-hmm. So we aren't going through the same level of professional development that other people are, where maybe they are getting more specific trainings about these things. But I still don't think that most school districts recognize how much time we spend with our students and what level of access we do technically have to them. Mm-hmm. When we go on an overnight, it is five kids to every adult, if not even a larger margin in that ratio. And we we talk about all the things that students can get away with and like trying to pay attention to that. But we aren't talking about the level of access that the other adults around could be having with those students. They talk mm-hmm. about the incident that this gentleman filed his complaint through was a team sanctioned event where all of the seniors were on this big trip that was always this big deal for them and was a huge part of the legacy of the team. And the the coach got them all very, very intoxicated and basically lured him into his hotel room. Mm -hmm. And a kid going into a coach's hotel room is a relatively normal thing in the forensics world. But there was a girl on the team who thought that this was not right. And so she sat outside the door of the hotel waiting for her teammate to come out because she had the sense that something wasn't right. And I'm really glad that people like that exist who trust their gut instincts. But the level of access that we have to our students is completely unprecedented in basically every other extracurricular that's happening in a high school. Um, Can I push back on that? And just with literally two words, locker room. Mm, okay. Like, yeah. technically, <laughs> at least we don't ask our kids to take showers. You yeah, know? <laughs> and that we hang out and talk to them while they do it. Right. And, like, their uniform is several layers of clothing. In fact, we often are telling them to put on more clothing. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, so I, mean, I, I do think other coaches yeah. are in situations where abuse could also happen. Um, yeah. And, I mean, and that is why, like, our district – my former district, your current district, like you did have to go through mandatory reporter training and you do have to take, you know, online courses every five years or whatever to be able to stay hired for safety of students and blah, blah, blah. You know, but, and then the thing is too, I I don't want any administrator to listen to this and be like, well, we really got to look into how much exposure those forensics coaches have to kids. Because like, yes, we take them away on a Saturday all day. 
it's why I had a parents meeting every year because I was like, I want to give parents an opportunity to meet the person who's taking their kid away from them for 12 hours mm-hmm. every Saturday. Yeah. But it's also like the very few overnights we take. Again, I don't think I don't think the message I want to leave people with on this podcast is that like we need to not have emotional vulnerable relationships with students. I think it's just that we need to be smart about how we're having those relationships and that there cannot be any assumption that how we feel towards a student, be it, you know, the mild affection of a coach to a student or feel parental um, or even those, sometimes there's there's those really special students that you have a connection with um, and you do end up sharing more of yourself with them and they end up sharing more of themselves with you. You just got to be super careful about it. You have to have the paranoia of a gay guy who used to work for the Catholic church. Yeah. Because I, I think I've had good relationships with my students and any of them who are out there, if they want to chime in and be like, no, you were a dick, feel free. Let me know. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not a coach who like gives hugs on a regular basis. And I, I have kept some emotional distance from my kids because of this fear, this caution. Um, but I still think I've had good relationships with kids. And I think it's totally possible to have appropriate deep, meaningful relationships with young people when you are a coach. Yeah, I'm I'm 100% not trying to, it's more the idea of I want to bring attention to how much power we have and the fact that we all need to acknowledge that. We need to bring attention to it. There are the the, the way that this article lays some of these things out, again, they're things that I think of as totally normal and completely commonplace, but realized from an outside perspective, that can look crazy. So it's me taking a moment to be introspective about the situations that I am in with my students and to acknowledge how much more seriously I can and should be taking them. I have an incredibly emotionally intimate relation with my students. They know so much about me. I am incredibly open with them. They are allowed to ask me nearly anything about myself. And I'm going to be honest with them because it is important for me to be real with them, not just about my awful forensics history, but like talking about mental health with them, being open with them about how actually hard being an adult is, how like being open and like frank with them about things like, my past experiences with sexual harassment and like when I was sexually assaulted, like I want to be honest with them so that they don't end up in situations like I did. And I want to be there to not just be a coach, but also to be a mentor. And I am trying my dangest every day to acknowledge the fact that I'm a role model to them, whether or not I am doing it on purpose. These kids are looking up to us. They want to impress us. They want to be good for us. And so we need to be good for them. And so talking about these things and talking about this article and recognizing the situations that we as coaches and judges and adults in the forensics world are in with our students is that we need to take them more seriously. And I mean, we talk about rule number one, being nice to kids Mm -hmm. and just how much that encompasses and just being respectful to them and acknowledging the level of respect that it takes, then that it it needs to 100% go both ways. 
I hope that people don't think we're scaring people away from forensics or that people think that I don't think there should be overnights. I just want people to take a moment to be really introspective about Mm -hmm. the level of vulnerability that students give to us and what we then do with it. Yeah. We can't take it for granted. We one no. I'm walking away from this knowing 100% that I cannot take a moment of it for granted. Mm-hmm. I feel very lucky. I do want to bring up one thing in that article that was I think really nice. Um, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, these students have been trained to use forensics as a way to make their voice heard. And the article talks about a young woman, Adelina Mitchell, who after uh, Pober was suspended and was not a part of the team anymore, she and her teammates, they wrote an original poem about sexual harassment. And at Nationals, they passed out 500 ribbons to raise awareness of the problem. And she performed that poem to a packed room and, and really got people to pay attention to what was going on. And so I think even in this really terrible, terrible situation, young people still, through the activity of forensics, felt empowered to do something and to say something, and that that is why we do what we do. And it's why even in the face of this type of scary situation where we might our gut reaction might be to shrink into ourselves and to stop reaching out to kids. We absolutely cannot do that. We have to continue to be advocates for this activity because it does empower our young people. And if it empowers them to call us out when we're being bad at our jobs, then good. Great. Then good. Um, so I wanted to to make sure that I I mentioned that. And I think it was a really great part of the article that they talked about that. And again, you should go read the article. They have an excerpt of the poem that I just love. So go go check that out. Um, um, also, I just I don't want to be remiss, so I want to make sure I throw this this out there um, that if you or someone you know is being sexually harassed, you can contact a trained counselor through the National Sexual Assault Hotline, and that phone number is one eight hundred six five six HOPE one eight hundred six five six four six seven three And um, I also encourage you to go check out more information on their website about sexual assault. And I will also have that link in our show notes. And I made it through talking about this without crying. Nope. Just welling up a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. So you wanted to end the podcast on a positive note. So let's each say something positive. Yes. um, So I want to talk about... How about this? You can, because I know that you said I put you on the spot, so I'll go first. I want to talk about an amazing interaction that I had with one of my high school coaches uh, and how important their mentorship was to me. One of my coaches was Steve Thompson, and he was amazing. One of the things I really loved about him was because he was a special ed teacher in our department, the way that he interacted with his students just felt slightly more casual than most teachers did. He always wanted to begin our practices by talking to you about your day, just to sort of relax you into your practice. And my freshman year, I was getting made sort of fun of on my team for doing group discussion Mm. because it was sort of like a quitters category. And so I had a conversation with Thompson during one of our practices. Because what we would do is I would bring in my research for the week because the 
question would change every week. Yay, group discussion. <laughs> I would bring in my research and he and I would just sit and talk through my research. He would ask me questions that would help with the conversation. And we would talk about strategies for group discussion. And after one practice, uh, I was saw people standing out in the hallway waiting to come into his classroom. And he asked why I was worried about them. And I said, well, I know people don't really take me seriously. And he asked, well, are you taking yourself seriously? And I wasn't because I thought that what I was doing was not good enough for forensics. It wasn't a real forensics category. And so then he just gave me this whole speech about the idea that like the only way that other people will take you seriously is if you learn to take yourself seriously. And that doesn't mean being serious, but it means trusting in what you're doing enough to believe that you're doing the right thing. And I, that has sat with me for now 14 years that as long as I take myself seriously, other people will, but that does not mean that I have to be serious because we all know I ain't the, the, the situation I'm sitting in right now, which I will talk about when we record (laughs) Sunday's episode proves that I am not serious, but I walk into nearly every new situation telling myself, if I take myself seriously, they'll take me seriously. If I take myself seriously, they will take me seriously. And that has sat with me for so long and it has been such a huge part of who I've become as a coach and why we talk about me. I stand on my soapbox about people taking kids seriously. So that's just a really positive interaction that I had with one of my high school coaches that has come with me now for almost half of my life. That's awesome. I'm and I didn't cry. I'm nodding. They're real. They're real wet, but I didn't cry. I'm nodding vigorously. Um, I was going to talk about cheesecake, but you up to the game. So <laughs> you did actually remind me in talking about a coach. Um, I got a really nice message this week from Paul Seymour, who was both a classmate of uh, a. a teammate of mine and then he graduated and came back and coached much like we did so he was a teammate and a coach for me um and he is the entire time i've known him always been just like super nice and supportive and such a sweet guy and i wish that his life would allow him to get back into coaching forensics because he would be a great forensics coach for any team lucky enough to have him um, but he made a point of sending me a message this week saying he had listened to the podcast and he really enjoyed our conversations and he thought we were fun. And so um, I love that part of what this activity is, is that it means years after our last conversation in person, it means reaching out to say, hey, you did a good job or I like what you did. That's and so, so nice. You know, I, and I'm, I'm the least emotional forensics coach out there. <laughs> But in that way, forensics is a family. It creates bonds that last a lifetime. Some of them are stronger than others. Some people you end up closer to than others. But those people that I did forensics with, like they are part of a posse in my head that will never go away. And if any one of them needed something and I was capable of helping, I'd be there in a heartbeat. There's too many good people in forensics to let this conversation ruin it. Because most of us, 99.9% of us, are in it for the right reasons. Or are here because there's something we need to get out of the activity that we can't get somewhere else. And so, 
let's just let's just even be fiercer about our advocacy for this. And part of that advocacy is remembering to make sure that kids always feel safe because they are safe. All right. So thanks for indulging us, guys, uh, those of you who are listening. And um, we don't have a cute hashtag for if you want to join the conversation, but we do hope you will start having conversations. Um, if not with us, then then with each other, with your students. Um, we can't we can't brush something like this under the rug. We can't pretend it doesn't also happen here. Um, it it did. It has, and it, and it it is. Let's face it. It's happening, um, and it's probably happening in in even worse ways in our community. And it's just still in the dark. So let's. Uh, Let's keep our eyes open and and our hearts open and move forward in such a way that uh, this type of article doesn't start to define who we are as people or our activity. Seconded. All right. So we will be back with our regular episode on Monday, and um, we will do what we can to to make it a little happier. Um, for those of you who, are, who made it all the way to the end of this episode, here's a little preview of what you will hear on Monday. We are actually going to have a special guest on the pod. We are going to be joined by the state tournament director, Michael Tross. We're going to take a break from our categorious discussions so that we can find out all about the WFCA state tournament, where it is, what's happening, everything that's different. Um, So make sure to tune in if you are taking your kids to state because there's going to be some really important information for you to listen to. um, And that'll be our regular Monday episode of Forensics Faces. So thanks everybody for listening and we will talk to you in a few days. Bye. Bye.